0: Hey, everybody, this is Heidi St. John. Welcome to the podcast. Today is Friday, February 15th. It's episode number 728. It's Meet My Friend Friday. And as always, I love to bring people on the podcast who I know are gonna encourage and bless you. And today is no exception. I have a beautiful young woman on the show with me today. Jasmine Grace Marino is here. She is gonna be talking about a story of hope and healing as a woman who has come from a position of being sex trafficked and recovered and redeemed. Stick around. I think you're going to be encouraged. For those of you who have been emailing me and uh, commenting on my Facebook page and my Instagram about how I said I wasn't going to get any snow and then we had a snowstorm, I heard you. I will never do that again. (laughs) I'm never gonna do it again. We actually didn't get any snow at all until just last week. And now it's like Narnia around here. So uh, I've been like, thank you, Lord, for sending me the snow. And I'm just gonna be quiet about the weather from now on and for the rest of my life. Coming up, before I get to Jasmine today, I want to let you guys know a couple of things that are coming up. I am going to be in Lakeland, Florida, coming up on March 2nd for the Heidi St. John Conference. This year's theme is Miracle Worker, the Life-Changing Power of Following Jesus. That is going to be hosted by Ardella Baptist Church and tickets are on sale right now. It's a great time to get your ticket. It's a one-day event, Saturday only, March 2nd, Lakeland, Florida. So listen up, Florida. I'm not coming to uh, Orlando this year for FPEA. I'll be there next year. I know a bunch of you are wondering about that. But I will be in Lakeland, Florida for the Miracle Worker Conference. Please check it out at HeidiStJohn.com. Forward slash events, now is the time to get your ticket. Also, really awesome thing happening right now. Mom Strong, Becoming Mom Strong is on super sale at Tyndale. The e version is just $2.99. You guys, the book sells for twelve something. And right now, today, for just about a week. That book is just $2.99. It's a great time to get it. You can get it at Tyndale.com forward slash eBooks, or if you just follow me on social media, I will link back to it. It's a fantastic time to get Becoming Mom Strong. Be sure to send that link out to all of your friends. Also, my brand new book, Bible Promises for Moms, releases on March 5th, and you can pre-order that right now anywhere books are sold. Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Books A Million, Tyndale, any place you want to pre-order that book. It's just $3.99. It's a great gift to give to any mother who needs to be able to hear the words of God from the Bible as it relates to her. So we're very excited about that. If you're wondering where I'm going to be for this season, my speaking season ramps up here really quickly. I will be obviously doing Mom Strong in Lakeland, Florida on the 2nd of March. And then after that, I'll be at Teach Them Diligently in Rogers, Arkansas and Nashville. And the weekend after that, I will be speaking for Answers in Genesis at the Answers for Women conference. All of the information about these events, including links to their early bird rates can be found at com forward slash events. All right. I want to get to my guest today because this story has really touched me. I get a lot of books here at the podcast, people who are interested in coming on the show. And every once in a while, a story will just touch my heart and... Uh, this is one of those stories, and I'm excited to introduce Jasmine to you today. We haven't talked a whole lot about sex trafficking here at the podcast, and so I'm going to give you, I know a lot of you are listening with little children, I'm going to give you a little bit of a heads up. Uh, this is a very, obviously, this is a very adult topic, and you know me, I don't really like to hold any punches, so I'm just going to let Jasmine say whatever she feels like saying. And so I want you to understand that we are going to be talking about sex trafficking today, and uh, prostitution, and just letting Jasmine share her story with you. Jasmine is a survivor of domestic sex trafficking. She was in the life for eight years, and she believes that God is redeeming her story to offer hope to other women who have been caught in the snare of exploitation and to raise awareness of the issue by using her voice to tell her story at schools and colleges and churches and conferences. Obviously, she's here on the podcast today. Jasmine believes that education about this issue can help prevent it and abolish it and i could not agree more jasmine welcome to the podcast yes thanks so much for having me so jasmine you have you've got several children of your own now you have a blended family of five kids one of which you're homeschooling a 7-year-old now right yes somehow by the grace of god <laughs> right on and how's that going just like it's... in like if you could just <laughs> describe homeschooling for those of us who are just like oh she homeschools too like in five words what would you say challenging, but totally worth it. What? I wouldn't have it any other way. That was amazing. (laughs) Five words or less, challenging, but totally worth it, (laughs) I'm impressed. (laughs) All right. So let's, let's jump right into this topic right here because I don't want to, I don't want to miss anything. You have an amazing story to tell, and I'm going to read just for our listeners so that you can understand the seriousness of sex trafficking. This is out of the the very beginning of Jasmine's book, which by the way, I will link back to Jasmine's book in the show notes today. But according to the U.S. Department of Justice, The term human trafficking is used in common parlance to describe many forms of exploitation of human beings. While these words often evoke images of undocumented migrants being smuggled across international borders, the term has a different and highly specific meaning under the United States criminal code. Human trafficking crimes, which are defined in Title 18, Chapter 77, focus on the act of compelling or coercing a person's labor, services, or commercial sex acts. The coercion can be subtle or overt, physical or psychological, but must be used to coerce a victim into performing labor, services, or commercial sex acts. Because these statutes are rooted in the prohibition against slavery, and involuntary servitude guaranteed by the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution, the Civil Rights Division plays a paramount role in enforcing these statutes along with our partners in the United States Attorney's Offices and Law Enforcement Agencies. So this is a this is a serious issue. And Jasmine, you have an incredible story. So by way of introduction, uh, can you give us just a little bit of your history? Like what kind of a home you grew up in and how you got involved Uh, into sex trafficking, how you you were trafficked in the first place.
1: Yeah. So I grew up in a home um, with two parents that really struggled more emotionally, mentally. Uh, My mom had mental illness and she wasn't really able to care and nurture for me like I needed in those early young years. And my dad worked a lot to provide for the family. Um, And the rest of my family was more A lot of addiction, a lot of criminal activity. So I never had like aunts or uncles that were good role models or supportive. I had a brother who was 10 years older than me that had a different dad and he struggled with trauma and abuse because he was sexually abused at a young age. So by the time I came around, my brother wasn't interested in me. My mom was really struggling and um, I was just left on my own from a young age. But by the grace of God in my life, I did have two grandparents who are my father's parents and they were very loving and very kind. We grew up, um, in the North shore area of Boston. I can hear it. I hear
0: your Boston (laughs) accent.
1: (laughs) Yep. Very Italian as well. And, um, (laughs) Italian Catholic. And so we had Sunday dinners and, uh, they, they I slept over their house all the time, and my papa would start cooking the gravy and make the meatballs and They were just very loving and you know she would tuck me in at night, read me stories, and I believe that planted a seed of love inside because I did get cared for and loved on by someone but then, as I grew, I just um you know started doing things I shouldn't have been doing I was struggling. With boys and um, doing drugs around 11, 12, 13 years old. And I was always with older boys and I was spelling love S E X, right? Because I just didn't know that that's where uh, you weren't supposed to do that. But that's how I thought you got boys to like you. Or I did experience sexual violence. I was raped at least twice by the time I was 14. But I don't remember the details because of the drinking and the blackouts that would occur. So I carried a lot of shame, and I didn't know where to put that. And so by the time I was 19, I graduated vocational high school. I was a hairdresser. I was working in a salon. I was attending community college because I wanted to be a journalist. So I had dreams. I had goals. I had plans Um that, again, my parents weren't helping me figure those out. I was just always figuring out stuff on my own. But don't you know, I was in a local nightclub with friends, and of course, I was drinking underage. And I met a guy who knew some friends of mine. So he wasn't a complete stranger. And he was only like a year or two older. And he bought me to the the bar and he bought me a drink for like <laughs>
0: seven bucks. So <laughs> this is the guy. So at the very yeah. beginning of your book, this is actually kind of hooked me. The very beginning of your book, I'm just going to read it. We were having a good time dancing and pushing away any any dudes that tried to step in front of us. Then this guy walked up. He was one of my friend's boyfriends, so he was automatically cool. He was a good-looking African-American in his early 20s. I'll call him Brian or B. He brought me back to the bar and offered to buy me a drink. When he pulled out a stack of money with his blinged-out bracelet dripping in diamonds and gold, he had my full attention. I did the once-over following the spine up his ears and then to the necklace with the Jesus piece and thought, hmm, this dude might be worth my time. So you see this guy, and he's 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 showing you that he's got money, he's flashing money in front of you. I think it's it's interesting that you noted that he had a necklace with a Jesus piece on it, so that kind of gives you a sense of well he's he's probably okay, yep,
1: yeah, decent, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> what
0: could possibly go wrong
1: unfortunately, and that's what began, and we exchanged phone numbers, and a few days later, we got together and he shows up in his champagne-colored Mercedes-Benz. And again, he's dressed nicely, he's handsome, and he has all the right words. And slowly but surely, over three to six months or so, we begin to date. And during this process, he's grooming me, little do I know. And also, like what I would say to my younger self now and what I say to many college students and high school students, like, note to self, don't date the drug dealer. Like, if there's a young dude showing up in a nice car and he has all this type of money and he doesn't really work 9 to 5 he probably sells drugs like yeah. but that wasn't even a red flag I, I i didn't even think about it it didn't bother me um and during this grooming process you know he meets my family he comes over for thanksgiving christmas played the whole boyfriend role um took me out shopping spending money on me uh, out to dinner get my nails done so right what he's grooming me he's getting me to trust and love him now i have a question
0: if you mm-hmm. If your parents had been more involved, because I, I like to think that if you were my daughter and you brought this guy over for dinner, I would immediately be like, oh no, 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 right? Like, like my, my hackles would go up. I would have a, a sense of this isn't right. But it sounds to me like that's not what happened with your family. It sounds like they just either they turned a blind, blind eye to it or they couldn't see it themselves or they encouraged you because they were just so happy that you were not bothering them and you're somebody else's problem. What, what do you think about that? If, if your family would have stepped in, would it have made a difference?
1: It would have, maybe, but I really didn't have a shot. And that's what I mean. So that was normalized to us, like mm-hmm. drug dealing or expensive money and clothes and like, that's all normal and accepted. So it wasn't that they could care less like, oh, she's not bothering us because I really didn't bother them. It was more of like totally normal and acceptable. Like again, I came from just a family of criminal activity and stuff. So it, it was normal.
0: Right. So this continues. And when does when does it take a turn for the worse?
1: Well, so over this period of time, he starts giving me, in my mind, seeds of doubt. Things like, well, why would you want to work at a hair salon? You can own one. Why would you want to go to school for journalism? That's stupid. So making me start to believe that my dreams and goals weren't good and that he had good ideas and plans. And at the same time, I get invited by some college guys that I knew to come to a party at their dorm. And they tell me that this girl's going to come and dance to be the entertainment, basically a stripper. And again, no red flags. I think that's normal. I think it's fine. All these college boys and this is what they do for the fun. Okay. Keep that in mind. <laughs> and um, we're at the potty, we're all drinking and the girl walks in to be the entertainment and she's my best friend. And mm-hmm. I had no idea she had gotten into this life. Like I knew she had a boyfriend I didn't know much about. And she kind of moved away from her parents, but I didn't know it was like this. So of course we ruin the party because we cry and we make a scene and we get kicked out. And I go back home to my boyfriend and I told him what was going on. And he happens to know her trafficker. Like, what is the chance? So a few days later, he takes me to her house and she's living in a really expensive, nice area of Boston called Chestnut Hill. And we come up to the home. It's big and beautiful. There's a Range Rover, again, BMW. And I come in, the home is big and beautiful. The trafficker, this is considered his stable. And his women that live there are considered each other's wife-in-laws, and they all have their own rooms or share a room, depending on how many there are. And she takes me into her room, and she has all these clothes, shoes, and jewelry. And again, she's not handcuffed to anything. She doesn't look drugged. If anything, she looked like she had it all together, and I was missing out. So at that moment, I started to really doubt myself and think, okay, maybe I'll try. Maybe I should do this. It doesn't look so bad. And she, knows. she said she makes this money and she gives all the money to her man and he gets anything that she needs. So I started to think, all right. So before I knew it, my trafficker sent me down to Hartford, Connecticut to work at this massage parlor that had been in business over 30 years, very professionally run in plain daylight. People walk by it all day long, but have no idea what's going on inside. And I'm taught how to talk to the sex buyers or tricks from my friend and I you know how to service them as well and I'm sent there with a duffel bag full of baby wipes condoms heel high heel stilettos and skimpy dress and I'm in this lounge area um, my name gets changed first of all so my identity you know I'm somebody else and I'm in this lounge area and the gentleman comes in and he pays the door fee and then he comes in and he picks the woman that he wants mm. and he takes you back into the other rooms and you do what you do for an hour or half an hour and right away, I knew this was wrong. I was like, totally disgusted, completely ashamed. The man could have been my grandfather. Um, it all set in at that moment, like, oh no, I changed my mind. This is not, I cannot do this. But at the same time feeling horribly disgusted, I looked down at the money I had, maybe it was 80 or a hundred dollars, and I'm excited because I never had all that money in my hand at that quick time. You know, I worked in a hair salon, I'd stand on my feet all day and work hard for maybe like $80 in like eight hour shift. So making that fast money was also a problem, but it was not worth the shame and disgust that I felt. But I worked, you know, from 10am till 1am, two, three days in a row. And this is all designed by the trafficker on purpose, you know, to break you down. That's the point, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, physically. And then they build you back up later. You know that's the point. Um, So they send you to this hardcore place first on purpose to see how much they can break you. So lo and behold, I do this over and over again all day for those couple days in a row. I stayed at a little motel next door, and then my trafficker came back, picked me up, and we came back home to Boston. And we get out of the car, and he puts out his hand, and I knew that gesture meant hand over the money. And I thought to myself, well, why would I do that? You know, I, I just made all that money. You wasn't even there. Right. And then it realized. Oh, you're my pimp, but wait, I thought you loved me. And I was totally confused and totally ashamed. And he said, is there going to be a problem? I said, no. And I just handed it over. So everything changed from that moment. And then soon after I started to change my mind, I went back home to my parents. I was going to college. I was still working at the salon, but I was living this double life and I couldn't stand it. And I started saying, I didn't want to do it anymore. And that's when he started using violence as a way to keep me under his control. So it's like domestic violence, but on steroids,
0: Mm -hmm. right? So in the United States right now, I mean, we hear about this, right? We hear about people uh, trafficking uh, kids across the border every day. I mean, we're hearing stories about kids in trucks. And you're saying this can happen to an ordinary college kid who's attending community college. And obviously, I mean, you weren't, you weren't exactly, I mean, hello, I'm always telling my, my kids, you want to meet somebody, probably the bar, not the best place to do it, right? You're right. Um, but when people say, is this really happening here in the United States? Your answer is unequivocally, absolutely it's happening.
1: Absolutely. And it happens to the most vulnerable as well as anybody. And it also happens to boys. I want to say that it does happen to boys as men as, as well. Um, and the more vulnerable you are, the more it can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're from the foster care system, or if you are from um, a broken home with addiction issues, a lot of mothers, unfortunately, traffic their own daughters mm-hmm. for their their own drug addiction. Um, but just like me, I was emotionally vulnerable. Right. And I was looking for love and he was supplying that.
0: So when you're when you talk to I I know that you're going and you're speaking at universities and places like that, and parents are wanting to know what what is it? Like what is your message to parents? What do parents need to know? Uh to either keep their ear to the ground to prevent this from happening, to be listening to their kids, what do you tell parents?
1: Yeah, that they just need to educate themselves, do research, um, Polaris project or the National Human Trafficking Hotline. Um, is a great website to visit to do research and educate. Um, Know that you have to be involved in your kids' lives on social media. There's tons of apps that traffickers can speak to them through, that you'll have no idea that they're even being contacted by them.
0: So when you have the opportunity to talk to parents, what are some of the things that you tell a parent about how they can prevent this, how they can be aware of it?
1: Yes. To um, be aware, number one, by doing their own research, realing, realizing that it happens, um, educating themselves by visiting websites. Um, Polaris.com is a good um, website to visit to educate. Also, Shared Hope International is a very good website to educate. They actually... Um, grade states on how well their anti-trafficking laws are.
0: We just so had Shared show. Hope International here at the at uh, Firmly Planned Family in Vancouver and they did a presentation. It was amazing. Absolutely amazing. Good.
1: Exactly. So to do those kind of presentations um, and then with your children, I think having honest open conversations about sex and the dangers of that and and what surrounds sex um, as early as possible and appropriate as possible to do that, to make them aware. Like, imagine if someone had told me about this when I was 14, maybe it would have helped me understand and know the red flags Mm -hmm. that this guy was trying to groom me. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you had asked me what trafficking was, I thought it was women from other countries, you know, stuffed in crates and sent Mm -hmm. to America. Mm -hmm. I would have had no idea that I was a victim of that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's true, and your your story is fascinating because, really, what it is, it's a, it's your journal. It's an opportunity to yep. read the things that you wrote. How long were you involved in this uh, in this sex trafficking industry? How long How long were you there?
1: Yeah, so my trafficker, I was with him for five years, mm-hmm. and you can see from the journal writings, I was struggling. I was, uh, I escaped from him so many times that my parents actually stopped helping me move my stuff back in. Like Mm. that's how many times I went back to their house. Like my dad was like, I know you're just going to go back. So I'm not even going to bring your stuff in. Um, Mm. But finally, the last time I got out was because um, my trafficker forced me to have an abortion, sadly. Mm. Um, And that set the fire inside where I said, you know, you've used and abused me all these years. Nothing you promised me has come true. It's probably not going to come true. But I have to go to take a life was way more than I could handle. Mm. So I started saving money without him noticing. I'd put money in Ziploc bags and tie elastics around them and hide it in the dirt of my potted plants. And after like six months or so, I had enough money and I went and I got myself an apartment without him knowing. But how does a woman in the commercial sex trade walk out and get an apartment? It's it's so complicated. Yeah. But by God's grace, he sent a sex buyer into my life that I met off of a website. And he didn't want anything sexual from me. He just wanted to talk. And like week after week, I would hang out at his house and he'd give me a lot of money and we'd literally watch SpongeBob. (laughs) In the back of my mind, this guy became safe because he wasn't touching me. (laughs) Right. And he was Italian and he was from my area and he owned a small business. So when I was ready to exit, I sent him an email. I said, I'm in a lot of trouble. Can you lie and say that I work for you? And he said, sure. Made me fake pay stubs and everything. Wow. And that's how I got my apartment. I tried to live a normal, productive life, but that was impossible because of the trauma. So that led me um, into a growing drug habit, which lasted about three years. And sadly, my brother died within those three years. Like I said, he um, struggled with his own trauma, he struggled with homosexuality, he had HIV, Mm. he traveled the world, but he could never find that peace that he was seeking. And so when he died in 2006, that led me to like, look at myself to think, wow, if I keep doing this, I'm going to die too. So I finally got clean and sober in 2007, but I was in and out of treatment and detoxes and halfway homes, um, but I finally got it. And when I had like three months sober, I met a woman who um, was known to take girls off the street to church. And she took me to a Pentecostal
0: church. Hey. <laughs> I <never stepped> <laughs> yep. there's a great introduction had- <laughs> for you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> never had stepped foot in that kind of place, but I wanted what they all had, which I didn't know what it was, but I knew they were all happy. Mm-hmm. And she goes to take me home into the sober house that I was living in. And she was like in her 60s. And here I am like 27, you know, maybe 100 pounds soaking wet, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and she had her other lady friends with her and i'm in the back seat of her car and before we leave the parking lot she says honey do you want to know how you can be washed clean and forgiven and i was like yes and so she says the prayer with me and they tell me that jesus loves me and he paid for my sins and i don't have to carry that guilt and shame anymore and that he loves me and i'm weeping in the back seat of this woman's car and mm. Now that I look back, it's like how appropriate for Jesus to meet me in the backseat of a car because <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Lord knows I've done some unholy things, right? But like that's him and his grace and his love and how he meets us where we're at. And my life completely changed from that point on. Um, I did end up relapsing shortly after that, but it got so bad so fast. It was almost like God had his hand on me. He was like, oh, no, girl, <laughs> you're not going that far. You know, I have plans.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um So yeah, I've been clean and sober and totally out of that life um, for almost, yeah, 11, 12 years.
0: And
1: um, the real healing didn't come though until I was five years out because um, I had my son uh, probably a year clean. So I became someone's mother very quickly in recovery and I had to take care of a human and I was like, how do I do this? I have no idea. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Those
0: of us who have not been trafficked are wondering how we're doing it. So Yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tons of trauma, tons of uh, you know emotional issues, and just trying to stay sober and love Jesus. That I was like, how do I do this? So um, quickly after I had my son, maybe he was like twelve months old or thirteen months old. I met my husband in church, and we got married pretty quickly. And that's when I really knew I was messed up because the intimacy of marriage yeah. really held that mirror up to my face like, oh, girl, you got major problems. And I still didn't know why. I still couldn't figure it out because I was stuffing that prostitution, that trafficking piece so deep because of the shame and the stigma. Yeah. I would have easily told people in my church, which I did, that I was a drug addict in recovery, but who would tell them that I was a prostitute? You know, like, you don't just say that. Yeah. <laughs> um. So we separated shortly after our marriage, after my, we had our daughter. She was about three, four months old. And within that separation, I sought deeper healing. I was always in um substance abuse um, or Christian counseling. That was all fine. But to go deeper, I needed the Lord. And I sought Him through transformation classes in my local church that I was at. And the healing came pretty miraculously and amazing. You can find that in the book. Um, But how I found out I was a survivor was I was in a small meeting of some ladies and this girl's talking about her ministry and how she goes into strip clubs and makes friends with the dancers. So when they're ready to exit the commercial sex trade, she's available. And I thought, Oh my gosh, that's me. That's my life. And I raised my hand and I had to tell her I had a pimp. I was on drugs. I had a, I worked at strip clubs. I did all this stuff. And she said, Oh my gosh, you're a survivor. Mm. And I said, "I'm a what?" <laughs> and all these women, like these Christian, perfect looking women, were all happy and clapping, and I couldn't believe I just vocally said I was a prostitute, and all you people are so thrilled. <laughs> you know <laughs>
0: But you saw you saw love, a real love.:
1: I did, in acceptance, and that was it. The unconditional love and acceptance. Um, and then I realized I was no longer a victim, but a survivor. And I, I stopped looking at the world through that lens of a, being a victim. And now I was empowered. And I started uh, sharing my story publicly. And when I started doing that, of course, I didn't want to do that at first, be transparent and authentic in front of people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did. And women would come up to me that were in the church for 17 years, this one woman. And she told me with tears streaming down her face, I have the same story, but I won't share because I'm too ashamed.
0: Mm
1: so so many women i realized in the faith community and outside of that were totally struggling with the same thing and that shame was doing a real good job the enemy right of keeping us silent
0: that's right well that's what he loves to do right that shame it flourishes in the dark mm-hmm. and what you did through the power of the lord really was to shine a light on it and uh, i love that you did that you also ended up founding a ministry called bags of hope what's what's the deal with bags of hope ministries
1: yeah. So out of this um, newfound survivorhood and connecting with tons of survivors across the, the nation and speaking and sharing my story, I had this desire to also give back. I didn't want to just leave the women that were still out there sick and suffering. So I started making bags with basic needs, socks, toothpaste, shampoo, conditioner, soap, a little note in the, car, in the bag, letting them know, hey, if I can make it off the streets, so can't you. There's a better way. Here's some phone numbers to call when you're ready. And I started giving out these bags by myself to women I would see on the streets. And my pastor encouraged me to make it into a ministry so people could help. And I thought he was crazy, but I did it. <laughs> um Don't you know now we give out over a thousand bags a year? Wow. Um, yeah, we give them out to 30 programs that are around the Boston area. And I just moved to New Hampshire, so I'm looking to partner with more programs up here. But... Um, vulnerable women or prostituted slash trafficked women are everywhere. You know, they're in domestic violence shelters, detoxes, um, halfway homes, homeless shelters, because there's a lack of safe homes and recovery programs for trafficking survivors. Mm. So these women get plugged into all different programs.
0: So when you're I know that there are there are people who are listening to this right now and I'm gonna, we've only got a couple minutes left. I've gone over time today, but this is so important for the the men and women who are listening to this and maybe the the holy spirit has just has really pricked their heart and they're like I would like to help. How can uh people like myself, how can we help?
1: Yeah. How you can help in your own local area is find um, organizations that do this anti-trafficking work. I'm sure there's some out there. Support them. Um, Be a mentor. Be a big brother or a big sister to um, at-risk and young, vulnerable kids. Um, Have these conversations with your own kids and families. Um, Watch documentaries. Don't watch the glamorized um, Hollywood movies, but watch real documentaries about sex trafficking and share the awareness. Invite survivors to come speak At your local church and have an event awareness around this Um, you can buy my book on amazon.com and um, share it with others that's a great way to educate yourself Um, my website they can find me at jasminegrace.org they can um, donate to bags of hope through the emmanuel gospel center they're the one who carries our 501c3 umbrella
0: uh, listen to you, girl. Listen to you all. You got, you got a <laughs> 501c3. Turns out God did want you to be a journalist. You are a journalist and uh, you're raising awareness through writing mm-hmm. and speaking around the country. I am so encouraged by what you're doing. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story of triumph over this. It's really been encouraging for me. Yeah, thanks so much. For those of you who want more information about Jasmine's ministry, and I hope that you will, you can find all of the information at the show notes today. I will also link back to her book, The Diary of Jasmine Grace, Trafficked, Recovered, Redeemed, in the show notes today. You can also find that at amazon.com. For more information about Jasmine, I'm gonna go ahead and repeat what she said. Her her website is Grace. Org. For those of you who want more information about the Ministry of Mom Strong International, check it out, momstronginternational.com, and I'll see you back here on Monday. For more encouragement, visit me online at thebusymom.com.